rarely you get to continue your series during communion. And if you're doing a series on the parables, um, actually it makes communion very convenient because there is a parable that deals with communion whether Luke decided that it dealt with communion or not. We've made it known in our study of Jesus' parables that they were used for those who were seemingly on the outside of the fellowship of the disciples. Jesus takes great pains to make sure that the gospel be plain to those who have not heard or accepted him. We may learn, those of us on the inside, we may learn uh, uh, great things and go deeper from Jesus' parables, but what they were designed for, they were designed so that those out there could understand them. And ultimately, what have we seen in all of the parables? That the message of all the parables to those outside using the outside voice to speak to them is actually an invitation, a constant invitation to join those of us where? On the inside. When Luke reports, and I didn't get into this, maybe I'll do it next week because it's a little bit uh, uh, study-wise and not devotional-wise, but Luke seems to have a backhanded way of speaking to those on the inside. He he thinks or believes or has a philosophy, and I don't know if it's uh, because he, he is maybe one of the very first converted uh, Gentiles. He's Greek. He has a very Western, uh, uh, Socratic, Aristotelian way of approaching the gospel. But he speaks, his parables certainly speak to those on the outside, but in the same time, they kind of backhand and sting those of us on the inside. Because the more time it seems that he has spent with those of us on the inside, he's kind of reminding us, you guys don't or either forgot or don't know what it's like to be on the outside. Especially when it comes to this table. Especially when it comes to a table that we have a tendency to believe is only for those of us who are on the inside. In chapter 14 of his gospel, Luke tells us of a banquet. And I don't know if the food is good. I imagine that it is because everybody's staying at the table. But socially, it is not going well. When you're looking at social norms and common courtesy. And it isn't going well because they invited this teacher. They invited this country rabbi from Galilee. The one who has the habit of speaking the truth all the time, even when it may offend important folk, like the ones who are throwing this banquet. The teacher did not approve of how they did things. And he begins with the banquet itself. Verse one says, on one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then in front of them, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, if one of you has a child or an ox, we always think that that uh, uh, parable-like line is only for ox. Did you ever notice that he said, no, your child 
or an ox has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on the Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this because they knew the answer. Of course they would. He did not like how their Sabbath keeping treated people. He knew the law was very clear on how to treat people. Every time a different feast is mentioned in Deuteronomy 16, it specifically states that the feast is also to care for the servants, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows. Those who the world has a tendency to keep on the outside. He certainly didn't like the way the seating arrangements were in this banquet, and he pointed that out too. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, and here we go, he told them this parable. You ready? When you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to have to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Doesn't like the seating arrangements. Doesn't like... uh, anything really about the banquet. At least as to the voice that it's using because the outside people are what? They're missing because they were never invited in the first place. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves would be exalted. He does not like how they're religion or their social manners treat people. He also said to one who had, the one who invited him, now he's going after the host. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they might invite you in return and then you would be repaid. Don't invite your guests just so they'll what? So they'll invite you. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. You'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He reminds them, you guys got a reward coming. Why are you looking for a reward here? And why are you looking for these temporary rewards that your rich neighbors and friends and family can bring you? You've got the ultimate reward coming. You can afford at least at one dinner to invite those who are are where? On the outside. In fact, it becomes so uncomfortable, especially after he goes after the host, there's one man who tries to diffuse the situation by changing the subject. He thinks, if I'll change the subject, 
maybe even uh, placate Jesus a little bit, we can get out of this uh, uncomfortable situation and move on. And it says, one of the dinner guests upon hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus had to have smiled when he tried to diffuse it by doing that. He must have said to himself, you know what? I've been talking to you all along about how my father's kingdom treats people versus how you treat people. You obviously have not heard me. Why? He's speaking to him in the outside voice and their inside ears won't hear it. But he goes, now that I have your attention, he goes on. Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. This is really the parable, but he began the parable way back by making the parable very directly about them. Now he moves it to uh, actually a side-by-side comparison. He wants everybody to compare the dinner that they're sitting at to a great dinner who was given by a king, a ruler. Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his servant, his slave, to those who had been invited Come, for everything is ready now. Great dinner, everyone invited. They've accepted. So he sends everybody to tell them that it's ready. But the unheard of happens. Everybody who was invited refuses. They all refuse. They all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land. I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I can't come. Now these excuses all sound good at first, but I want you really truly to examine them just a little closer. Did this guy really buy an entire plot of land, sight unseen? I've never seen it before. I'm gonna go take a look. And if he was rich enough to buy a plot of land, sight unseen, couldn't he wait until after the banquet? The same with the guy that bought five yoke of oxen. He's gotta try them now? And the other one now has a brand new bride, a wife. You telling me she wasn't invited? Definition of an excuse is a lie stuffed with a reason. My favorite excuse is, can I borrow your plow, neighbor? No, not while my wife is combing her hair with it. Your wife is combing your hair with your plow? No, but when you really don't want to do something, one excuse is as good as another, so... Christ Object Lessons says, I cannot was a thin veil for I do not care to. So the insulted host sends out another invitation. The slave returned, reported all this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go at once into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Those who are always where? on the outside, but not this banquet, not anymore. Not the one put on by this great king, this great master, whoever he may be. 
This time, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, those are the ones invited. Those who would be considered outcasts in this kingdom are actually the ones who are exalted in the kingdom of heaven. And then the most wonderful part of the parable. Every parable has one of these. One that makes us shout, one that makes us rejoice, you, one that at least allows us to say amen, even in an Adventist church. The slave said, sir, what you've ordered has been done, and there is still room. Not one. One, amen. There is still room. There we go. I have in my notes right here. Doesn't even get an amen. I'm about five for five on my notes on that line. I haven't had to change them in years. I know why it doesn't. Really, I do. I know why it doesn't. We forget what's offered at this banquet. We forget who we are. We forget who he is. But what we really forget is what truly is offered here. We as Adventists can become as self-righteous as any of the original audience of this parable. You see, the night before Jesus was crucified, he gave us all an illustration of what he would accomplish the next day. He gave us crystal clear analogies. It's not even a parable. He took bread and we had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It's not for me anymore. It served the purpose from which I began to inhabit it. I'm done with this earthly body. It's here for you. The wages of sin, death. Whose body should have been broken? Mine. Did his, did he deserve? No. His body for you and for me. Why bread? Well, he's already given this illustration to John. I told you, I think I shared with you before that the gospel of John is the one gospel that has no communion narrative. You're not taken to the upper room. You're taken to the upper room, but you're only given Jesus' prayer, his three-chapter prayer from 14 all the way to 18. You're not given the narrative of the communion anymore. But there are two miracles in, within the Gospel of John that John figured that was as good as communion as anybody. It was the wedding feast at Cana where he turned water into what? Into wine. And it also twice... He fed thousands and thousands of people his bread. And after the first one, everyone gathered around him and he told him what he was doing. This is the bread of heaven come down for you. So how does he do it? Well, break the bread, break the body and what spills out? His blood. In the same way, he took the cup also saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Forgiveness. The one gap, the one thing that, that stands in between us is our great debt, is the wage that we earned. He tastes death for us. He takes the death that we deserve in order to give us the life that only he deserves. Atonement. If we can't amen that there's more room at the table is because we've forgotten what's been offered to us. Forgiveness, 
atonement, life. When we're talking communion, we're talking about life. We're talking about communing face-to-face with the Father who gives us life, all because of the Son who makes it possible. And we may understand all this and even comprehend it only because of the Spirit that he gives us. In Jesus' prayer after the supper in our scripture reading, it says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want to know eternal life? Know Jesus. Period. Communion is a way to know him. To be reminded of what he's done for us. To know him. To have him reveal himself uh, to us as he have never done it before. You've been in the church all your life. This could be your three, four, five thousandth. Evangelistic numbers I love. This could be a few communions for you, right? It could be better than anyone you've ever had before. If we remember those two things. Who we are who he is, and then both of them, what he's done, is doing, and will forever do for us. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world, to be with him where he is. And guess what he's doing while he's away from us right now? And actually, no, he's not away from us. Okay? He left his spirit so that he would always be with us and not just be with us, but be in us. We're actually more intimate with him than the 12 disciples were. But right now in his body, before we uh, see him in his glory again, you know what he's doing? He's preparing a table. Because when he was done with this meal on earth that first night, he said, I will not eat of this again until I do with you anew in my kingdom. He's spending this whole time setting a table. And how much room is at that table, according to him? There is still room. If there's room for you, there's room for everyone. Back in our parable, the last verse told us that none who were invited would taste of the king's dinner. Why is communion the least attended Sabbath of all in the Adventist church? At least in North America, it is still the least attended Sabbath at all. May it have anything to do with uh, being or not being worthy? I know for years it was popular to figure out what it meant to try to partake of the communion in an unworthy manner, and we came up with a definition of that, and we taught children that they were unworthy to come. It was the right thing to teach them. We are unworthy, but it's actually our unworthiness that buys us a spot at the table. Are we just at the banquet to show off? Are we just at the banquet to say, you can't give this to just anybody? There are churches who have done that. There are churches who practice what we call closed communion. You have to be a member of their church in order to take communion. Most of North American's denominations still practice that. We long Long ago, 160 years ago, I don't know when we made this policy, we practice open communion. 
Anybody who walks in here who wants to partake of the body, we let them. Notice the seat at the table that night. Was there anybody there that was worthy? One betrayed him out loud and he left right after everything was given to him. How about the next 11? Were they worthy? How many betrayers were at the table that night? 12. They all left him. They all abandoned him. And this table here, it's not uh, Sherry and Sharon and our deacons that are offering this. It's him. He set this table. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, he calls us to this table here today and offers everyone, the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, everybody, his body and his blood. Forgiveness is here for the taking. The seat at the table is reserved for those who know their wholeness only can come from him. Go out at once to the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This may feel as we are here, but it is a call also to all who will be seated at that one last glorious table with our father Abraham. So it's physical. This is how we remember that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Being seated around this table on a particular Sabbath in 2021 is exactly as if we are at that eternal table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we better understand this at this table so that we don't have the host at the next one saying, friend, why don't you let him sit here and you need to move lower. which I know, there is no lower or higher at that table, which means we'll know it before we get there. And the only way to know it before we get there is to begin practicing it at this table now. Amen? We don't readily make room, do we? We find reasons to not make room. Just a little thought right here, just a tiny little thought. The Americans for Disability, the American Disability Act. When do you think, just estimate, when do you think that that actually was uh, ratified? See, for me, it feels like it's been around forever, right? Right? Access for all who are crippled or lame, as the Bible puts it. Access for everybody. It seems like it's been forever. Do you know when it was passed? 1990. The two biggest opponents to the ADA, do you know who they were? The two groups that opposed it the most for the 20 years of its debate, Christian churches and corporations. Their number one argument, it'll cost too much. Christian churches is what really bothers me. I expect corporations to act that way, don't you? But churches? A lot of people look at the steps to this platform and then we only see two. 
But ask some of us when we get to a certain age how difficult it is even to get up here. We propose to build a ramp so that in case anybody in a wheelchair or a walker, anybody could get up here. Then we found out how much it would cost. Guess what? No ramp. It's a physical illustration of a spiritual point, especially when we consider, and this has just been kicking around ever since camp meeting, because here's what, here's what set me off at camp meeting, is that there was a closing prayer at a particular worship service, this camp meeting that I was at, and the prayer went out to make everyone whole. Those who were lame and crippled, we look forward to the day when you will come and make them whole. And I always wondered what that sounded like to somebody who was confined to a wheelchair. Since my legs don't work, I'm not what? And to actually say that from a, a, a pulpit, to say that after a service in which you worshiped God, to tell somebody that some sort of physical disability or blindness does not make you whole. So what's kicking around with me in this is that do you realize that in the kingdom, the one thing that you absolutely won't need is legs? Why? We can fly whenever we want. So I always wondered what, the, what that table will look like. Because I heard somebody say there won't be a handicap section. There won't be any ADA needed at the table. You know why? Because everyone has access. So I always wondered if they're in a wheelchair here, why not up there? They don't need their legs anyway. Right? I'm working on it. I've been kicking the ground. At least to get us to understand of the language that we use and who's on the outside and who's on the inside and maybe who we should be fighting for, maybe who we should be inviting. And I'm here to tell you that most people in a wheelchair do not find churches accessible because they're the first ones who have never, ever accommodated them. We put stairs and steps, makes for nice, Services makes for good sight lines, but it makes it lousy for somebody who's on the outside here. And maybe if we prove to them that our building was accessible, then we could also prove to them that this table is accessible. This table was set by Jesus for you and me and everyone else who we invite. Can you hear it? Can you hear the servant's voice? Master, we've done that, but there is still room. There is still room. It's okay to amen it now. There we go. Praise God for this table today.